Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same thing to you, things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and fellowship of sharing in his sufferings and become, becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. Kind of captures it. Hey, I forgot to mention that um, Jean, Jean Denny, Margaret's mum's in hospital at the moment and uh, uh, she's had a, a minor, minor, a mini stroke um, last Sunday when she should have been driving to church. She was on an ambulance heading to hospital. And uh, so we want to pray for Jean. Uh, she seems to be doing okay. I had a chat with her the other day. What would you say, Margaret? Is it sort of thumbs up, thumbs down? or she, She's going okay. She's but lovely dear lady, 91. I reckon she's the old, anyone here older than 91? Okay, Jean is officially the oldest person in our congregation. So, uh, and uh, <coughs> she's a lovely lady. And uh, so we need to be praying for her at this time. So we're going to pray now and uh, we'll pray for Jean and we'll pray also for our uh, hearing of God's word. Father, we want to thank you for Jean and we thank you that, um, for her love for you. We pray for her at this time that um, you would bring her comfort and peace and uh, restoration and that she'll be keeping on trusting in Jesus. Father, we thank you for your word and we pray now that as we come to think about it and consider it ourselves that your spirit would be working amongst us and uh, clarifying for us the, the essence of the gospel and uh, that we might be people who put our trust in Jesus and him alone and we pray these things in his name. Amen. So are you religious? Do you think of yourself as being a religious person? I was introduced to someone the other day and uh, <clears throat> as I was being introduced to him, I was told by the other person, he's not religious. And uh, in order to defuse that situation, I said, fantastic, because guess what? Neither am I. <laughs> I'm not religious either. Because if, uh, if by religion we mean ceremonies, rituals, uh, men dressed in fancy outfits and gowns and that sort of stuff, if that's what we mean by religion, well, it's not what I'm about and it's not what we as a church 
are about either. But I did say to this young man that we do love God and we want other people to know about God's love for them and we want other people to get to know God and to love him. That's what we're on about. We're on about relationships. We're not on about religion. But technically speaking, that's not entirely accurate. Uh, during the week, for the first time ever in my life, I actually looked up the word religion <laughs> uh, and researched what the word religion means. And it comes from a Latin word which means to bind back. Okay? Now, it's like the word, so if you think of it as religion, uh, the lig, it's like the word that we, uh, ligament. Uh, what, what do our ligaments do for our body? They, they bind our body together, don't they? They hold, it all to, hold, they hold it all in place. That's what a ligament does. And so to lig is to, is to bind. To re-lig is to bind back. Uh, in the case of re-ligion, it is to bind back men and women, boys and girls, to God. Now, when you think about it, that actually is what we're on about, isn't it? <laughs> we are about binding people back to God. But the question is how to bind people back to God. That's the real issue, isn't it? Because the question is how can fallen people be bound back into a relationship with a holy and righteous God? Now, I remember a conversation I had once with a uh, Japanese woman who had been brought up in the Shinto religion. She'd travelled a lot and in Australia a friend had shared the gospel with her and in, Sunday, in church one Sunday she told me, she said, Scott, I've become a Christian. And uh, when I asked her why, her response was unforgettable. She said, well, I've, I've studied you know, various religions and as far as I can tell, she said, that they, they all teach what we must do for God but the gospel teaches what God has already done for us in the death of Christ on our behalf. And being Japanese, she was very um, humble and apologetic, uh, kept on apologising that she doesn't understand very much about the Christian faith. But I remember thinking to myself, oh, that more people would understand what you have just expressed. It's not what we do for God, it's what God has already done for us. And it's not just people outside the church who I wish would understand this more clearly. It's people inside the church who need to understand it. Because sometimes the church activities which we do, in order for us to express our relationship with God, uh, can be used by people in order to gain a relationship with God, to earn a relationship with God. It's very easy for people to think that if I go to church, uh, if I'm baptised or christened as they say, uh, if I take the Lord's Supper, if I do these things, then I've kind of earned enough credit points for God to accept me. Sometimes church leaders even teach this. So I remember on one occasion I was with a church leader when a lady from his denomination uh, approached us 
and she spoke to him and she said, I've been coming along to church all my life. I've been doing all of the ceremonies. I've done everything that's been expected of me. And yet she said to him, I just don't feel that I'm right with God. Now you think, great opportunity for the God. I just wanted to jump in there and share the gospel with her. But he said, no, no, it's okay. Just keep on doing the things you're doing. That'll be fine. Now, in the New Testament churches, this kind of issue was always, was always bubbling, bubbling around, bubbling away just under the surface of church life, especially for Jewish Christians. Because uh, for Jews who'd become Christians, it was great uh, to trust in their Messiah, to trust uh, in uh, the death of Jesus and in his resurrection. But the question was always, but what about the law of Moses? The, the laws about rituals, the laws about sacrifices, the laws about food. And of course, what about the law about the circumcision of males. Now, of course, the apostles kept on preaching that Jesus, by his obedience, uh, his obedience that led to his death on the cross, had fulfilled the law, and the right response to what Jesus has done is simply to trust. Trust in his death and repent. Trust in what Christ has done and turn back to God. But for some people, especially Jews, they were thinking, that's, that's just not enough. I mean, it, it's too easy. It's too simple. How could it be as easy as that? Surely, surely we also have to do something to contribute to our salvation. And so they taught that trust in Jesus, absolutely, but if you want to have a full relationship with God, you must be circumcised. Now, it's talking about the fellows here, okay? It's male circumcision. Now, this issue stirred up very, very strong passion in the Apostle Paul. Negative passion. Uh, in the letter that he wrote to the church in Galatia, he says that he wishes that these people that are teaching this stuff, that they would uh, do a more fuller surgical procedure on themselves. And you get what he's saying there, don't you? He's saying, don't just stop with the foreskin, do the whole job. Sounds a bit rude, doesn't it? But that's how passionate that Paul felt about this particular issue and the people who were teaching it. Um, look at what he says here. If you wouldn't mind opening up your Bibles to, to Philippians chapter 3 uh, on page 831. And in verse 1, uh, Paul knows that he's going over old territory, that this is stuff that he's already raised with the Philippian church. He's written to him about it before. But he says, There's no, I don't have any trouble writing to you about these things again because uh, it's for your own safeguard. And then in verse 2 he says, Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence 
in the flesh. Now, watch out, he says. Actually, in the original, he says it three times. In the original, he says, watch out for those dogs. Watch out for those men who do evil. Watch out for those mutilators of the flesh. Paul doesn't seem to have a very high opinion of them, does he? No. No, He's not not a fan of these people. Uh, He says we need to watch out for them and he speaks of them in very, very strongly negative terms. And there's a reason for that. The reason is this. Why is he so passionate? Well, there's three issues that come up in Scripture which explain why Paul is so passionate in his negativity towards uh, this teaching and these teachers. First of all, remember that the Christians in Philippi would have been mostly Greeks and Romans. Philippi is in Macedonia, northern Greece, and uh, Philippi was a Roman garrison city. And so these converted people would have been mostly Greeks and Romans rather than Jews. But Paul, as a Jew, is including himself with them when he says, it is we who are the circumcision. He's telling them they are circumcised. In fact, they are the circumcision. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, let's think about what circumcision is. Now, we dealt with this uh, a year or so ago when we were looking through uh, Genesis. And uh, you haven't forgotten the promises that God made to Abraham, have you? Three things. Uh, what, what was the first one? A, a people, a land, and a blessing. Okay. That overarching promises that really govern a whole of the rest of God's revelation to us in Scripture. A people, a land, and a blessing... And you recall that in terms of this promise of a people, that humanly speaking, it didn't seem like it was likely to happen. In fact, it was impossible for it to happen because Abraham and Sarah were so advanced in age and Sarah had been barren all of her life and at their age, to have descendants was just not going to happen. But God did a miracle, didn't he? A miracle in the form of a little boy who was named Isaac. Isaac. And through Isaac came many descendants. Through Isaac came a people of God, the nation of Israel. Now, physical circumcision was a reminder to every Jewish man if he ever bothered looking, it was a reminder to him that his very existence, that the very existence of the people of God, Israel, came through the miraculous uh, giving of birth um, to Isaac. And it's that particular part of the human anatomy that is a reminder of that. Make sense? That's what um, physical circumcision was all about. But now... The great miracle is it not that God gives birth to a child by the name of Isaac and creates a people of his very own through a physical child Isaac. No, the great miracle is that which we know post-Pentecost and that is that God by his Holy Spirit 
actually cuts uh, through our stubborn hearts and, well, gives us a new heart, a new heart that is soft, a heart which is responsive, a heart whereby we are humbled and we are drawn to place our trust in the gospel of Christ. And so God has created a new people. Uh, the descendants of Abraham, because they have the faith of Abraham, rather than the physical lineage of Abraham, are people of God who come from every nation, from every race, from every language, Jews and Gentiles. And so the circumcision that reflects that, the circumcision which creates that new people of God is the circumcision of the heart, heart circumcision. And it is because of that that Paul can say that to the Philippians who are Gentiles, we are the circumcision. Now secondly, Paul says in Galatians 5 that if to get right with God means trusting in Jesus plus being circumcised, then why stop there? Why stop with, with circumcision? Why not require obedience to every single law of Moses and to be judged accordingly? Paul says if you take on one law in order to add to your salvation, then you must take on the entirety of the law. And that, friends, is a frightful thought. Now, the third issue, and this is the big one, is this. If to get right with God means that we need to trust in Christ's death plus be circumcised or plus do anything else, then what does that tell us about the death of Christ? It says that we actually have to add to what Christ has done. It says that the death of Jesus on the cross is not sufficient. It says that it is not enough to pay for sin. It is not enough to re-lig, to rebind us to our Creator. And so therefore, uh, Christ plus anything is a false gospel. And that is, these people are actually denying the gospel and therefore they are leading people away from putting their trust in Christ alone. Now that's why Paul uses such hard language, language against them. Now, when someone says that... Um, I know when, when someone says that... Um, that something is not worth having, it's always got, there's a bit more of a credibility factor when they actually know what they're talking about, when they've actually maybe had that thing. Do you know what I mean? It's like when Cassie and I go driving around these big flash new residential areas and we're looking at these fancy houses and I start criticising them <laughs> and say, I would never build my house like that. Look at the way that's been designed, isn't that? And Cassie turns to me and she says, do you own one? No, I've got no credibility. Paul had credibility with the very thing that he is saying is not worth having. He actually had it. 
In fact, if the way to get right with God is through obedience to the law, then no one would be better qualified than Paul. Um, have a look at verse 4. Verse 4, the second part of verse 4. He says, um, If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. So Paul wants to match his qualifications with anybody else's. And he says, I'll win on this one. He says, circumcised on the eighth day. That was the requirement, eighth day after birth. Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. Remember, Benjamin was a little small tribe. And when the kingdom split in half, when uh, Jeroboam took the ten tribes to form a new kingdom and Rehoboam stayed in the south and... There was two tribes that remained faithful to Rehoboam. That was the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. And uh, by, by being faithful to, uh, uh, to Rehoboam, they were actually being faithful to the house of David, and to, the, to the lineage of David. So he's from the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's true blue. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. Now, the Pharisees were meticulous in their absolute obedience to every single law that was written down. Every T was crossed, every I was dotted. And as a Pharisee, uh, Paul had had very good theological training. Uh, you couldn't just automatically, but he, 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 he studied theology. And he studied theology in, uh, under, the, under one of the most renowned theological teachers of his time, a man by the name of Gamaliel. So he says, I'm a Pharisee, and as for zeal, persecuting the church. Well, he later came to be ashamed of that. But um, <clears throat> what he's saying is here, in terms of being out there, in terms of being active, in terms of defending you know, the, uh, the law of God, I was, I was on the front line, persecuting the Christian church. And as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. What kind of righteousness? Legalistic righteousness. Every... Every T crossed, every I dotted. Now this would be, I guess it would be something like saying, um, you know, I was born into really, really good, solid Presbyterian pedigree, which I wasn't, by the way. I'm not talking about myself. <clears throat> but uh, it's like saying, you know, my, my dad, my granddad, my great-granddad, they're all Presbyterian ministers, you know. Uh, some have been moderators. One was moderator general of the General Assembly of Australia. You know, a good Presbyterian pedigree. I, I was baptised when I was a kid. I went through the youth group and uh, uh, I studied at a first class theological college. Uh, I was ordained a minister. I've been inducted as a minister and morally, well, uh, there's never been any charges against me. <laughs> you know, I've led, led an impeccable life. I've ticked all of the boxes and surely if anyone deserves to go to heaven, it's me. And Paul says, no, you're wrong. Uh, in verses 7 through to 9, he now points a, he paints a very, very sharp contrast where he says, I had all of that and probably better than you. I had it all. But then in verse 7, he says, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ, 
Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things and I consider them to be rubbish that I may gain Christ. The debt we owed to God because of our sin has been paid in full. As God the Son bled and died on a cross. Because it doesn't, mean, it doesn't matter how good or how dreadful we've been in our lives. It doesn't matter how religious we've been or how totally non-religious we've been. There is nothing. There is nothing which any one of us can do which can blot out the record of our sin. It doesn't matter what ecclesiastical titles you might hold. It means nothing. It cannot do anything to blot out the record of sin. But when Jesus died on the cross, he did so in our place as the punishment which we deserved for our sin was poured out on him instead so that we can now be declared righteous by God, not because of our personal righteousness, for we are not personally righteous, but because as Christ has taken on board our sin, so his righteousness becomes our righteousness. An exchange has taken place on the cross of Christ, which means that we can now be forgiven, we can be re-ligged, Back to God forever, freely. And Paul goes on to say in the remaining verses of this passage that, that he just wants to share with Christ. He wants to share with Christ in his resurrection, but he also wants to share with Christ in his sufferings. So tell this to anyone who says to you that God never wants you to suffer. Part of being united with Christ, part of being in union with Christ, is to share not only in his resurrection, but in his sufferings, which means that Paul is not unhappy. Paul is not unhappy that he has lost his status. Paul is not unhappy uh, to be in prison for the sake of the gospel. Paul's fine about that. Now, why do we need to hear this message? And um, what is the warning for us? Well, I don't know. Has anyone here um, recently been told by anyone that you need to be circumcised in order to be saved? No, you're, not, you're not likely to hear that these days. It's not a popular false teaching not that I'm aware of anyway but <clears throat> you may hear people say that you must trust in Christ and obey food laws anyone heard that one or you must trust in Christ and obey Sabbath laws or you must trust in Christ and be baptised in order to be saved But there is a more subtle issue here, and it's this. It is possible uh, for us, 
for a person to give the appearance of being um, a gospel person um, by being involved in church and by doing Christian things, but in reality for it to be a mirage. That is, because of pride, a person may not accept that they are not good enough for God. Um, I mean, other people, they need a saviour, but not me. I'm okay. It's all those other people who need to be saved, but not me. And they go by the principle that if you want it, you have to earn it. And so my family history, uh, my morality, my talents that I use, my zeal for the church and the money that I give, the money that I give, boy, and my time, it's my, it's my righteousness. Subtle, isn't it? It's subtle because these are things which we actually, which can be an expression of genuine faith in Christ. These are the kind of things which we want to encourage people to be involved in. We want people to be repentant so that they're living a moral life. We want people to use their talents and to be zealous and to give generously and so on and so forth, but as an expression of thanks for the righteousness that we enjoy freely because of Christ's death on our behalf. Not in order to achieve righteousness. Now, by the way, one way that we can detect self-righteousness in ourselves is to do some reflecting on how easy is it for us to criticise others and their performance in the church and in the Christian life. Do we find it really easy to do that? Uh, Because self-righteousness is often accompanied by judgmentalism. It's part of the nature of it. The best way of correcting ourselves is to keep on reflecting on the judgment which Jesus has already borne for us on the cross so that we can have, as Paul says, not a righteousness of our own but that which is through faith in Christ. Let's spend some time praying, shall we? Father, we want to thank you that uh, in your great mercy towards us that you have not left us under your judgment. Father, that uh, you have taken that judgment upon yourself in the person of your Son, our Lord and Saviour, Jesus. Father, we acknowledge that uh, there are times when we have too high an estimation of ourself and uh, that we can tend towards uh, trusting in our own goodness and in our own zeal and in our own uh, religious credentials uh, in order to be accepted by you. Father, we pray that you would strip us of all pride. We pray that you would humble us so that we acknowledge the need for a saviour And Father, in having acknowledged the need for Jesus, that we would live our lives trusting in him alone, seeking to be repentant so that we live a life that honours you, and expressing towards others the same graciousness 
that you in Christ have expressed towards us. Your undeserved mercy. Father, we pray that uh, you would help us to watch out for those who would seek to add works to faith and uh, seek to impress upon us the need to do so as well. Help us to be discerning. Help us to have a clarity of thought about the gospel so that we can be discerning on these matters. And help us reject them. And help us to always be trusting in Christ alone. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.